The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. If you're a manager or an owner of a company, you know how difficult it could be to find good, reliable, affordable employees right now. Most employees want to be able to afford the cost of living, which today is increasingly difficult. However, this employee shortage has made its way to a surprising area. Rabbis. Growing up, I thought rabbis would always be there because nobody tries to make a career in the rabbinate just for the money. It's more of an avodas Hashem or a labor of love situation. But that does not seem to be the case anymore, as my two guests this week will be explaining. Hi, I am Rabbi Menachem Penner. I am the uh, Dean of the Rabbi Isaac O'Connor Theological Seminary, which is the Smicha program and beyond at Yeshiva University. Hi, I'm uh, Yehuda Channelis, and I am the coordinator for the newly established Chinuch Incubator at Yeshiva University, together with uh, also remaining a classroom high school teacher at Maya Note in Teaneck, New Jersey, and a few other projects. Rabbis Penner and Channelis will be explaining the whys and the hows of the rabbinic shortage, as well as the different areas of Judaism that are affected, and what can be done to help stop this before it becomes a true crisis. Rabbi Channelis, Rabbi Penner, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me this week. I was mentioning to Rabbi Penner before we started recording that the reason that I had you both on the show is to discuss a topic that first of all, is going to be very much affecting so many American Jews and maybe beyond, which we'll discuss in the coming years, um, and something that I don't think people know uh, too much about. And that is that when Rabbi Penner was a guest in my neighborhood for one Shabbos, he mentioned that we have this uh, potential shortage of Rabbanim around uh, the country. And I, I wanted to delve a little bit into this, the reasoning for the shortage, the, uh, the what we can do about it. But first, let me get a little bit of a background on the rabbinical ordination process. Um, I'm going to ask you to speak on behalf of YU, um, because that's where you both are. But if you happen to know how it differs from other major producers of Rabbanim, uh, you could throw that in as well. Okay. Um... We have, YU has a four-year smicha program that's basically four years after learning in college. And after, for most of the guys in our community, they usually learn for two years in Israel and then a couple of years in college, and then they continue to the smicha program. Uh, what the smicha program tries to do is three things. First of all, to make sure guys know how to learn. They have to be able to know how to learn. It's not just about specific halachos and specific things. So they have to be able to know how to learn. The second is to give them a broad view of halacha. We don't expect fellows who are 25 and finishing a smicha program to be poskim. In fact, we'd, we'd be unhappy if they thought they were poskim uh, when they were 25. What we want to do is make sure that they, they're familiar enough with the areas of halacha that they can ask a good shiloh, that they're familiar, they know what they're doing, they know how, they're prepared for what they'll do. And the third thing is that they should be prepared professionally for Avodos HaKodesh, for being Rabbanim, for being Mechanchim. Um, about two-thirds of the students in the program, there's usually about 50 guys a year, um, and about two-thirds of the fellows go into some sort of communal work, and the rest go into uh, law, medicine, this and that. They're just taking off a few years to uh, to learn first. Okay, and the what about the uh, the cost of such a program for, for potential Rabbanim to get into? Is there a differentiation uh, for different types of rabbinus, or how does that work? So this is really our gift to the community. We've always had a, um, a policy of not charging fellows for smicha. Um, the costs are obviously the cost of any yeshiva or any postgraduate program or anything like that. Um, but uh, we don't charge. We charge a small registration fee every semester. And all of the students who are at REITs are on a full scholarship. Phenomenal. And the the we we went through a couple. We didn't really discuss the actual nuts and bolts of what they'll be, what they're discovering, what they're learning. Uh, you gave a little bit of a general uh, outline, um, but I know that there's uh, required internships for all rabbinic hopefuls. What what are those internships? Correct. So that's really the capstone of their professional training. Most of them are spending uh, most of the time during the four years in smicha learning. Um, they're learning Gemara. They're learning various areas of halacha. 
um, and then um, throughout their professional courses, um, too many to possibly list. Um, it's about a nine-page document that covers all of the different areas that rabbis need to know today to go into the field. Um, a tremendous amount of pastoral counseling and understanding themselves. Every, every, every fellow going into professional rabbinics at REITs now takes a, um, a standardized test in emotional intelligence. And we have a, uh, a mashkiach therapist, a doctor actually, who works with the fellows based on their scores and tries to point out their, their strengths and their weaknesses and emotional events. It's an incredible, incredible problem. There's never been anything like that, it's fair to say, in preparation for the rabbinate. The last thing they do is internships, whether they're internships in schools, whether they're internships in schools. Um, and it not only gives them good experience, but it's basically the stepstone you know, for their career if they do a good job in that point, you know, usually catapults them to, to wherever they are going next. Now there's, this is not something that came about overnight. This is a process that probably took years and decades to get to where we are today. And I'm assuming we're not done yet. There's going to be something coming down the pike every couple of years. Oh, we have to actually now address that. How, how, how often do you reassess the program itself and make changes and addings and subtractions from the current program um, that may, may, it may not be like fully recognizable for what it was uh, X number of years ago. Right. Obviously, the major changes happen periodically, but uh, changes to the curriculum happen, I'd say, every month. Oh, wow. <laughs> every, every two months. It's just, you know, our goal is that the Rabbanim should be prepared for what they're going to encounter. And um, it's not doing anybody a favor, the Rav or the community, if the Rabbanim aren't familiar with, with the issues that are going on. There are more issues in our community to expose our future Rabbanim to than we can, even in our very extensive curriculum. And there's a lot of tension and triaging. So we deal with this challenge, that challenge. Uh, but the curriculum is updated constantly, constantly to be able to you know, give them as much as we can. And we have a significant program of continuing rabbinic education for rabbis in the field. Uh, because again, if you're out two years, you're you're way behind on, on certain issues, going trends in the community, technologies and things like that. So our job is to try to make them as prepared as they can be to, to, uh, to serve the community. So I'm not gonna ask you, I, I already asked, but if, if you don't know, it's fine, um, about the differences between Yeshiva University uh, uh, of, of REITs and other Yeshivas that are, that are turning out Rabbanim. Um, but is there any sort of a communication between these various yeshivas and or, or is there some way that each yeshiva knows what the other is doing? So they either try to copy the good parts or differentiate when certain places are putting out yeshivas are students that are going to be geared towards certain communities and not others. Is there any sort of a communication that way or is everybody on their own? There's some communication, but probably, you know, probably not as much as there should be. Obviously, more yeshivish places are going to be more focused just on the learning side with less of the professional training. Um, they do a certain amount of professional training and occasionally I'll get questions or, you know, how to deal with a certain issue and this and that. Um, the, the typical smicha curriculum, there, there is no typical smicha curriculum. Officially, smicha is to learn certain sections in the, in the Shulchan Aruch about kashrus. That's what you have to learn to get smicha. And the question is how many other areas are being covered? Tarasa Meshpacha, Shabbos, and this and that. Um, as I said, our, our program is certainly not only to produce professional rabbis, but it's certainly with a, a good eye towards producing professional rabbis. So we try to cover an enormous amount of material to prepare them for the next step. So I, I, I jumped, I, I'll be honest, I, I made a mistake. I usually, at the beginning of these uh, discussions ask uh, a little bit of the background of my guests um i'm gonna do that now and i apologize to my audience we're going a little bit out of order um if you, can, you were so excited to start i was so excited this is this, you don't understand this is i've been right looking in. forward to this so long i uh i it, it's re it's really a fascinating topic to me i hope it's a fascinating topic to my audience um but uh we'll, we'll, we'll find out when i get feedback um, so if I can get a little bit of a background on Rabbi Penner how, and, and then Rabbi Channelist, how did you get to be in the position you are now? And then Rabbi Channelist, same question for you. Well, I am a uh, student of Yeshiva University, and I did smicha at Ritz, um, and then went into Rabbanus, which was really my passion to go into Shul Rabbanus. I was a Shul Rabbi in Queens for 20 years um, in the young Israel of Holliswood. 
Um, and at a certain point, I got called back by the yeshiva to also work in the yeshiva to work on exactly this, on the professional training and on the smicha curriculum. Um, there was a sense that we needed to really bring rabbis, younger rabbis from the field back into the yeshiva to try to be training the fellows, you know, to give them a good sense of everything they needed to know. Uh, one thing led to another, and I don't know, 20 years, 22 years later, um, I guess uh, I guess I'm the, I'm the dean at this point, and my responsibilities, my zchus, is to be able to work with the fellows who are in the smicha program, the fellows who are in the post-smicha kololim, um, publications like the Reitz Press and all of their svarim, um, and uh, projects around the world that try to uh, that try to uh, recruit and inspire and educate and then place and then support rabbis throughout the process. And before we get to Rabbi Shannon, there's one thing that you mentioned there that I think is something that is true for every industry, and that is bringing people in from the field to teach the next generation. I went. I'm in. I have a graduate degree in public health. And my best professors were not the career academics. It was the person that worked a regular job and then at night taught us what basically they did for a living and how we can succeed on that end. And I think that's a level where academia needs to improve, where people training the next generation of employees, the next generation of whatever uh, field that they're training for should be people that did it or that are currently doing it. I'm glad that why you brought in someone that is that that is in the field or was in the field at the time in order to train the next generation. Right. I think I think it's fair to say though that there is a level of expertise both in, you know, in in Azrieli who are teaching a lot of the teachers and in terms of our yeshiva itself, you know, the professional components are one piece. Right. Um, you know, you have Gadola Israel teaching uh, many of the pieces. So I think it's sort of got to be that combination. There is a certain tr- tremendous expertise in certain individuals. Um, and I think that I've come to understand over the years how both classroom teaching and being a rabbi is not just something you get up and do. Um, I, it looks like something that, well, if you're charismatic and you like to speak, and if you gave a Dvar Torah at your friend's Sheva Brachas, so you could teach a, you know, you could teach a seventh grade Gemara class. You can't teach a seventh grade Gemara class. There's really, really a lot of things to know. And yes, I think it's that partnership between experts in the field, really renowned experts like we have you know, at REITs and Azrieli, that's the Graduate School for Education at YU, and uh, the people who are in the field who can not only give a, um, a firsthand perspective, but can also be inspirational and can let them, right. can let the young people know that, yeah, yeah, I, I, was, I had exactly the same questions you had and exactly the same fears, and I'm also a regular guy, and push through it. And I love this lifestyle and I love the life and I love the opportunity to teach people. So. Rabbi Chanelis, can we get a little bit of your background? Rabbi Penner basically introduced me a little bit through, uh, through what he was saying. I, I, I'm definitely a field person, you know, um, someone who has always been really passionate about, about Chinuch and about teaching. Um, hard to remember exactly when it, when it started. I had some incredible rebellion in, uh, in elementary school and in high school and yeshiva and beyond. Um, and I guess together with my passion for, for teaching, you know, um, I can never imagine myself not being in the classroom. This week was the first week of, uh, of school uh, for us. And, you know, just that excitement of meeting your class and um, connecting with students and being very excited about what you have to, to share and learn together with them for the year just never goes away. And um, I had the privilege of starting my career um, and spending maybe many more years than I want to admit in Washington Heights and in YU, MTA, Azrieli, a little bit of Revel, a little bit of, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of reads in the Smicha program. Um, I began my career teaching in MTA uh, just a little part-time. Um, and then I taught in TABC uh, in TNAC for, for seven years, uh, where I started getting involved in administration by being the director of uh, educational technology. Um, I then did a crazy thing for someone who grew up in Teaneck and started working in Teaneck, which was move out of town. Um, and I became the director of curriculum and instruction in um, Fuchs Mizrahi in Cleveland, where I was for seven years as well. And that basically, you know, gave me the opportunity to be involved in the bigger picture, some a lot of bigger picture questions about how we teach uh, students, how we support teachers, how we think about de- development, you know, from ninth to 12th grade, from sixth to 12th grade, from first to 12th grade. 
Um, and, and it's really that kind of bigger picture thinking that has always excited me beyond the day-to-day teaching in the classroom. I've always been, you know, someone who's at, loved asking questions and talking to people about the field as a whole, um, you know, send me to a conference with a bunch of Jewish, Jewish educators. And, you know, I love the opportunity to talk and schmooze and talk and ask questions about um, just all different things that are, that are going on. And Baruch Hashem, I've had a lot of opportunities to, um, to try to get involved in, in, in those areas you know, through YU, through a program called uh, TLN many, many years ago, which was uh, a learning uh, Shabbatonim and informal programs uh, for, for, for high schoolers uh, through, uh, through the originally the MSDCS and, and CJF, you know, the kind of communal departments of, of YU. Um, and really, I think that that passion is what brought me to, to the work that I'm doing now for YU in, you know, being very rooted in the classroom and loving to think and to talk about the what, the how, and the why of education, um, but also being very concerned and passionate about the field and how we can support it and help it grow. So that leads us into our discussion here. And, and I'm, I, I should add that I'm probably coming to this as someone who may in the past have added to this issue because I am a former teacher myself that no longer is teaching. Uh, I have a degree, a secondary a degree in secondary education. Um, but what I would like to ask is, first of all, when did this shortage of Rabbanim nationwide start and how bad is it right now? It's a good question. So, you know, we've been through the pandemic over the last few years. The pandemic was sort of like two decades and things sped up that were kind of going on before then. I don't think any of us really understand, in, you know, in terms of the economy, in terms of the job market, you know, not having the right number of employees is almost every field. And we're wondering like, why is that? How is that? Where did everybody go? What are they doing? It certainly expedited things a lot. But I think that we went from a situation where we didn't have enough rabbis to serve outside of New York in the modern Orthodox community um, and in other communities to the fact that to situations where we don't even have rabbis in New York, in, in, the, in the major, you know, in the major centers. It's been a while that we've been getting calls from schools in Boston, even in Los Angeles, uh, you know, in, a, in places, you know, we need a teacher, we need two teachers. I think that there was a renewed interest in certain people in going, leaving New York. Baruch Hashem, I think people are realizing there's a lot outside of New York and uh, their houses that are less than $800,000, interesting things like that. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of things on the way that are pushing people to consider going out of New York. But now you're really seeing it inside the New York number of open teaching positions and rabbi positions is uh, is pretty is pretty staggering at this point. Rabbi Channelis is more of the data, certainly on the teaching side. That's what he does. So Rabbi Channelis, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think in addition to to some of the factors, you know, Ray Penner was was mentioning a lot of um, you know what I've seen anecdotally, um, you know, through alumni and talking to friends who are working in, across the country in different schools. You know, another piece of the puzzle is also Israel and Aliyah, mm. um, and the growing trend of of men and women going to Israel, Shana Aleph, Shana Bed, and just staying um, because you know they're attracted to being in Eretz Israel because the cost of living or the lifestyle just seems you know, something more more reasonable because the infrastructure um, and the opportunities to help them transition from, um, you know, the, their years in Israel to professions has has shifted over time. And I think that that's also um, presented challenges on the on the teacher front. Um, but in, in terms of in terms of numbers, so, you know, my focus really from the YU perspective is uh, the mono-Orthodox community. Um, and, and what I tried to do was to take some of the, uh, take the job postings uh, that are posted on a number of different job boards and filter them for mono-Orthodox communities and teacher and not administrator positions. And what I found was that over the past few years, basically there's been about 100 new openings each, uh, each wow. year. Um, about 100 new openings kind of nationwide within just modern Orthodox uh, first to 12th grade schools, not even not even preschool, which is a whole nother different conversation. Um, and if we take that number 100 and compare it to the new people that are that are that are going in, because, you know, if anybody moves from one job to another, so that just creates another opening. Um, so the numbers of, of people going in are, are much, much less, um, much fewer. And um 
you know, we looking at kind of the smicha data over the past um, 10 to 12 years since uh, since I graduated and, and received uh, my smicha. So the numbers have slowly but surely gone down in terms of the amount of people um, taking jobs in, in Chinuch. You know, if um, three Chagas Michas ago, which is about nine, 10 years ago, uh, there were around over, over a three-year period, there were about 45 men going into uh, going into education. So two Chagas Michas ago was 35. And the last Chagas Micha, which was uh, just this past uh, a year and a half ago, a year ago, um, so there were closer to 25, 28. Um, so we're trending in the wrong direction. And, you know, part of what we're working on is to try to figure out how to, how to send it back upwards. All right. So before we get to the how, um, do we know a why? I know Rabbi Penner, you mentioned about the pandemic and a, a lot of shortages in jobs. I actually just listened to a podcast this morning from the New York Times talking about the shortage in teachers that that's going around right. the country nationwide. Is that is it the same thing or is there a different uh, aspect here that's related to, to Smicha and Rabanus? I think I think that um, pandemic, I think, heightened trends. I don't think they created I don't think it created the trends in the first place. I think it heightened certain trends. It, it uh, a lot happened over two years um, that brought that brought realities to us. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons why um, people are heading away uh, from the field. And again, it, we're, we're still producing uh, a good number of fellows. Um, there are, there are a couple of open pulpit positions, but as, you know, as, as Rabbi Chanel said, the, the, you know, seven shul rabbis this year, seven shul rabbis in minor communities are making, announced they're making Aliyah. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people to, uh, to leave their positions besides people that are retiring and otherwise why do we have this? So certainly, you know, in terms of the teacher shortage itself, I think that Rabbi Chanelis has more of a, you know, focus particularly on, on why not the classroom um, experience. But I think that, that on the whole, I think that the financial challenges of living today, and certainly living today, if you want to live in the New York area, and so many people do want to live in the, not only the New York area, but they want to live in the particular hotspots of the New York area, right? I even feel like the New York area is becoming a little more about the five towns in greater Teaneck, you know, and then Fairlawn and then Bergen County, let's say. In other words, it's, I'm a Fairlawn boy. I always have to mention Fairlawn, but um, <laughs> but um, but I think that the the pressure that the young, I know the one that the pressure that the young people feel to make a living that'll be able to establish themselves and they'll be able to afford to quote unquote, bring up a family, support a family, in the New York area, uh, really drives them. It's not. It's not. A, it's not that they're moving away from rabbanus. They're moving away from careers of meaning to careers that have a certain minimum salary. Hmm. That that's really what the shift is. It's not a shift away from from smicha. Again, the, the classes are we're still getting this year. Bar Hashem, uh, everyone's seeing a bounce back after COVID. YU's undergraduate went up tremendously. This, this year, the largest they can ever on record. The Smicha program is up. We could have almost 60 guys coming in this year starting. So we're seeing a trend pushing. But the question is, how many of these young people are really going to be uh, open to taking jobs in Avodah taking jobs in helping careers, helping careers rather than careers that kind of bring in a certain amount. And it's not, I don't think it's that the, that the, that the young people have become more materialistic. I think that they, they're just afraid. They're just afraid. They yeah. just, they just don't know how they're going to make it. They don't know how, you know, they're going to find the shidduch, uh, whether that person's going to believe that they're going to make it um, unless they're walking into a salary that is just very large and trying to figure that out. So that that's I think that's overall probably the biggest issue. I, I spoke recently about the fact that today it feels like Masiris Nefesh to go get a job and try to bring up a family. I think there was a time, and I know it makes me sound very old when I say things like I think there was a time, but there was a time when Masiris Nefesh was serving the community. And I think that the fear of bringing up a family in 2022, because of the financial aspects, because of the cultural aspects, because of everything, that's now the Masiris Nefesh. The Masiris Nefesh is to bring up a family. <laughs> that, that, if I can do that, 
then I'll have, you know, and there's, there's just not so much headspace or not so much neshama space to also imagine that professionally, I'm also going to, you know, to be doing that. Although again, you know, people like myself, people like Rabbi Channelists and others say, why would you want to do anything else? Why would you want to, why, why wouldn't you want to spend all day? I tell the guys, you know, why wouldn't you want the, you, when you open your briefcase, why wouldn't you want Svarim to be in your briefcase? I think it's the, I think it's the, it's the greatest opportunity, but it's scary. It's scary to think about that in 2022. Now, something you mentioned earlier in this uh, discussion was the, uh, the out of town, for lack of a better term. We all know what we mean, we mean out of town, but we'll, we'll, we'll use that here. The out of town communities. Now, historically, and I'm talking about like people significantly older than everybody in this conversation. A lot of Rabbanim made their made their uh, their bones, made their name in out of town communities, and then moved into New York at a later date. Is that something that is still happening to a lesser extent? You mentioned earlier about how maybe there aren't eight hundred thousand dollar homes outside of New York. Maybe you get a little cheaper. Uh, I know that there are communities that are creeping up there. I don't think Florida's the South Florida communities are as affordable as they used to be. But there's still communities in Texas and in Wisconsin and in Michigan and in, in a lot of other areas that have modern Orthodox communities where Abundant can start out. Maybe cost of living isn't as much. Maybe uh, housing isn't as much. Um, is that something that people are still doing? Is there a reason that if they're not, is there a reason why it's not happening there? So they're certainly still doing it. We have Abundant across the country. It, it's interesting. Two things are coming together. On the one hand, I think that there's more of an openness than ever to live outside of New York. Yeah. Again, partially because of the economic reasons. And, you know, but that same person who's gung-ho about leaving New York, when they get offered a position in Teaneck, that that teacher who would be interested in maybe going to Boston, and then they get a call from Frisch, it's just, they're not going to go. Um, so there's, there's a supply and demand issue, I think, on some level that... I think people might be willing, more willing than ever to consider. They realize there's life outside of New York, but if they have a job offer in New York, then it's difficult to, to head out. And I don't, think that's, I don't think that was ever that way. I don't think a rabbi who went to the Midwest, went to the Midwest if he had an offer in Queens or Brooklyn. It's just the community was small and there were only so many positions and there were a lot of young fellows who wanted to just go into the rabbinate. So you didn't have a choice. You didn't have a New York position and, a, you know, and an out-of-town position. You didn't have a high school position and an elementary, elementary school is awesome. But if, you, if a lot of people, you know, you wave the 11th grade in front of them or something, then what do you say about that about channels? So I... I... I think I agree, but I think that that attitude, you know, the the decision making goes goes back even before first job offers, and that it's not just about you know what you're actually offered once you get to the stage of choosing a job. It's the perception of what a successful career that involves a certain amount of respect, and that you know your parents and your parents' friends and your friends are going to look at you and respect you for having gotten this position. I think that especially among young uh, young men, uh, there's a very narrow sense of you know where I could see myself teaching and what I could see myself uh, doing. And uh, often, you know, and there are guys who I've I've spoken to over the past year who said, you know, if I can't get my job in the New York area all boys high school, then it's not even worth it. Um, and I, I think you know that also is part of the challenge. Part of the challenge. Is the financial, but part of the challenge is also the narrowness in how people are thinking about uh, chinuch and what success in chinuch looks like, and the type of hashpa and influence that you can you can have, and with whom and where. That's a really, really important point that he's making. That I think people, and the fact is, it, you know, Rabbi Channels would be the first to say that that goes. It's the same thing that people face when considering a career in avodas hakodesh in the first place. A lot of people just have a very narrow view of what they could do with their future. And if no one's ever suggested to them that they could be a Rebbe, it just didn't cross their minds. Just like this, just like even within the field of Chinuch, for example, being a Rebbe means being a Rebbe like the four people that inspired you, that you know, you know, and, and you just haven't seen the world of what goes out there and what goes on out there and all the schools and all the impact that you can have. And now you can have probably a much greater impact 
outside of a major center if you're if you're you know Rebbe in the high school. Well, you should have seen people's reactions when uh, you know when I when I told them that I'm going to to Cleveland. They're like Cleveland, what's what's in Cleveland? Right? And and I myself had never stepped foot there before right, going out to to interview for the for the job, um, and had an incredible experience, an incredible seven years, and a really unbelievable community. It's funny because my my children's school recently had to hire a new principal, and we love him; he's great. But the reason is because that. I live in one of these New York metropolitan area suburban communities. Um, and our past principal was recruited to an out of town elementary school and he left. So there is this aspect of people go- leaving the New York area. And I think that one thing that our Penner you brought up earlier is that there's more of a willingness to move out of town amongst workers. And as there's a more of a willingness to move out amongst workers, because maybe now they could do their same job from home and they don't have to live in New York to have a Manhattan job and they in that case maybe more communities are being built outside and you might be might in the future or even starting now communities that are just starting out right now that maybe only have a half a dozen people that live there right now or a dozen to make a million um, then as those communities grow maybe there'll be more of a need for that now that will probably exacerbate the shortage of Rabunim but on the flip side, and, and this is, I do want to get to this part, the, the solution, would it, w- would it become more enticing if there are more of these jobs available? Like the more that these jobs become available, maybe more people go into them, maybe uh, the salary for them becomes higher, like as communities that need a, a, a rub, as schools who need uh, teachers and principals and rebame. Um, start to see what's going on, then maybe the salaries for these positions increase and ends up putting more of an intern burden on those communities. But is that something that we could see happening? I think so. I mean, competition is a wonderful thing when it comes to paying rabbis and machanchos more. Um, <laughs> and again, all of this is really on the women's side, just the same. There's no. I was going to get to the. the there the is no difference. And the, the crisis is, uh, you know, is, is just as bad on both sides. Um, it, it could be. The reality is that that um, despite the fact that the modern Orthodox community is not growing at the exponential pace of a Lakewood or something like that, um, it is growing, Baruch Hashem. And there are new institutions, and there are new communities, and there's more need, and there's just more bodies needed in the field. Um, and that's kind of why, you know, why we're pushing so hard on this front, why we made sure to bring Rabbi Chanelis in and why we started this initiative we don't expect next year to have, uh, you know, 25 new people. It takes, it takes a while to turn around a system, but, you know, kind of looking from where we sit and looking at the community and looking at the number of positions that are open, uh, we just need more people to, 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 to consider this. So Rabbi Channels, what are some of the things that you're doing that will hopefully look to turn this around? I, I think that overall, you know, going back to the the challenges one more time for the sake of appreciating the solutions, you know, part of what I, I found as I sat with uh, teachers in the field and principals and students really were the most insightful, you know, undergrads, graduate students um, last year, I found that a lot of their decision-making um, was being made completely separate from knowledge of and experience of what was actually going on in the field. Um, and they are sitting in the in the base madrash in YU or in their classes in Stern and talking to their talking to their friends and their mentors uh, in 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 yeshiva. And they're thinking about, you know, in theory, would I be interested in in chinuch or not? Would I want to go into education or not? Could I afford it or not? Um, and that's combined with whatever conversations their parents happen to be having around the Shabbos table or that they've they've heard, you know talking about teacher X or teacher Y and worrying about, you know, tuition and how much tuition costs and how much, how much, you know, we could or can't pay teachers or administrators. And, you know, those type of theoretical conversations provoke a lot of anxiety um, that ends up being separate from, you know, the experience that brings, you know, myself and, and Rabbi Penner, you know, to work every day and gets us really excited about what we we do, the energy of uh, being around students who are learning and who are growing day in and day out and the growth that you yourself have, uh, being in that type of environment and part of that process, being able to, to continue to 
to learn yourself uh, Torah and to learn Torah from the students that you're teaching um, and to be in an environment where everything is really focused on how can we help people grow. Um, that's a tremendous energy and, and brings a tremendous excitement with it. Um, and really the, the approach that we're, we're taking is the more that we can connect young people with being in schools um, and real teachers who are in the field and who are excited about what they're doing and passionate about it. And they can share not just, you know, data about, you know, how they make it work financially or, you know, how they balance, you know, family life and, uh, you know, not just answering technical questions, but giving the whole picture of their lifestyle and why they love it and why they chose to go into it and why they still love it and want to continue to do it. So that's part of some of the energy and excitement that, um, you know, that we hope hope to build, you know, too much of the conversations and articles that, that I've, I've been reading over the past number of months about this teacher shortage crisis um, jumps to talking about all the challenges in the field um, and, and and the problems, you know, that are that are that that, that could be better within the day school uh, within the day school world. And there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, but all of that ignores the positive side. And spends too much time talking about what's not working instead of highlighting and profiling and, and putting on display you know, the many, many teachers um, and many, many school leaders who love what they do and wouldn't do anything else. So that's kind of the primary philosophy behind what we're doing. And, and, and what that means is, you know, creating all sorts of different kinds of fellowships and programs uh, to be able to send groups of men and women for short to a little bit longer periods of time to schools, two different communities. Uh, for example, where we, we launched um, a program called the Mafteach or Mafteach program, depending on how you want to pronounce it, uh, where we'll be sending uh, kind of a, um, a version of which I, I started when I was in Cleveland, uh, sending groups of young men and women out to uh, out of town, out of New York area communities for four weekends over the course of the year. Right? They go into schools all day Friday. They're observing teachers. They are giving informal uh, chaburas and teaching. They are uh, giving model lessons if they want to. They're having conversations with teachers and school leaders within you know, a five-hour day on, on Friday. On Shabbos, they're within the communities. They're eating meals at teachers' homes. They're running own eggs or tishes with students. They're involved in the energy and the informal side of what's happening. And four weekends sounds like very little, um, but we were amazed in, in Cleveland by what was able to be accomplished in those four weekends and the energy that those students uh, left the program with, both in terms of their appreciation for chinuch and what goes on in schools um, and their appreciation for, oh, there's, there's life and even some good food right outside of, uh, outside of New York. So that's just one, one example. And the second kind of major thing that we're working on is just man-to-man, woman-to-woman, man-to-woman um, support. Just, just guiding, giving more guidance um, to students as they go through this process. You know, I've only been been officially on the job for a couple of months now, and I've already had questions from students about, I really want to do this, but my parents don't want me to, you know, how do I approach them? How do I have that conversation? Um, I am just debating whether or not, you know, to go to Azraeli, to not go to Azraeli, to do graduate school and education. I'm wondering what the next best experience is for me. I did this great summer program. Now I want to see the formal classroom a little bit more. And they have lots and lots of questions, but not so many places to go. So we're hoping to, to give them an address and that with that added support, um, you know, they'll feel like we're behind them and uh, we can encourage them to kind of keep that, that passion and that excitement uh, that they, uh, that they have, you know, towards uh, getting to the actual job. It's funny that you mentioned one, I mean, there are a few things that are worth highlighting, but I want to highlight one area that uh, people tend to highlight the, the negatives and what, what teaching has to offer, what the education system has to offer. And one of the areas that somebody once who was in the, the Chinuch field was talking to me about was he said, look at you, you have one job. This, this podcast is not a job. This is something that I do on the side. Um, and, and it definitely does not make money. Um, but it's more, it's more of a labor of love. But like, I have one job. I have one, I have one career. I, I do that for the entire year. But for a teacher, for a Rebbe, uh, for a principal, we might have to have you know, one or two side gigs going on. I, somebody might have to volunteer and not volunteer, work for the OU or have a summer camp job. Or I had a second grade Rebbe, I remember who was a caterer on the side. 
Um, and, and we have to have these secondary jobs. And I told him like, yes, but those secondary jobs that you have, like they're in a different environment. It's, uh, you, let's, say you, let's say you're uh, you working a summer camp. All right, in the, in, so you have eight, 10 months a year that you're teaching and then you get a break to a different venue and now you're doing that. I'm doing that same thing. I'm, I'm commuting to that same office, you know, 200 days a year, 250 days a year, doing the same thing every single day. Yeah, there might be a little bit of a change, but you get to have this kind of a change. And when I point out to them that, that you, humans kind of need a little bit of a change every now and then that you get to experience it every, every, every 10 months, he kind of thought about it for a second. He's like, you know what, you're right. I, I don't know that I'd be able to do the same thing every day in and out. And I said, yeah, thank you very much. That's what I have to do. Um, <laughs> uh, but, th th but that is kind of the way that we kind of all feel see our jobs like oh i wish i was doing x and not what i'm doing now it's kind of a grass is greener yeah, i have to situation. say rabbi rabbi lamb of blessed memory he used to meet with the smicha fellows um i think in their first and their fourth year he would have dinner up in his office in yeshiva university and the first year what he told the rabbis is not to become kvetchy rabbis he says rabbis are always kvetching about how difficult their job is and how he said everybody's job is difficult you know, one of the things I'd say to, you know, sometimes I would get that exact thing. Students would say, but I have to have two jobs, you know, I said, wait a minute. You don't think the people that have one job have off in the summer, do you? <laughs> That's not like, uh, yes, you're an elementary school teacher and you're also tutoring. But when does your elementary school teaching job end? You don't think everyone else goes home at four, do you? That's not, that's not certainly in the New York area. That's not what's happening. People have to understand this is a profession and you put together different parts of a profession. One of the things that we found is that the more young people think of it as a profession and the more training they get, you know, the kids that go on uh, to get training in Azraeli and they begin to understand that teaching is a profession and, 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 and it's, it's something you should be proud of. And, 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 and you have to learn how to do it. And the same thing in terms of the Smicha program with, with, the, with the rabbinate. Um, we just had our first session uh, this week with the fourth year students about um, about rabbinic counseling and the kind of stuff that really comes to you. It was it was seven Nebuch, seven students who were like looked like deer in the headlights with myself and Rabbi Larry Rothwax from Teaneck, who's the head of professional rabbinics and has been a rabbi in Teaneck for probably 20 years already in Beth Aaron, and Dr. David Pelkovitz, who is the Gadol Hador of you know, Jewish psychologists in terms of especially trauma and things like that. And I felt so bad for these guys. You know, we tried to introduce them to the world of things that come to the shul rabbi. And they were, they were pretty nervous. They're pretty nervous. It was a lot, there was a lot to hear in that session. And what we told them is, don't worry, at the end of this year, you're not going to feel as anxious as you do now. There are things you can learn. You're not going to be a mental health professional by the end of the year. Um, but but the more I think that young people begin to see this not as a continuation of being a counselor of the guy who never graduated NCSY COLO, um, you know, and instead I got a real job and this person is doing something else. And to realize, no, this is, this is a real profession. It's hard, but it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding. And yes, you can do this. I, I think that, that, you know, Besides some of the factors that Rabbi Channel has talked about, the misconceptions, many people, many young people just never imagine that this is something they could do. Um, and, 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 and it's, it's interesting because in the years that they're deciding what to do professionally, like the students in YU, the Rebbeim that they're sitting in front of are great role models, but they're not great role models for career. Because they, in, in a certain way, it becomes scary for the guys, someone sitting in Rav Shechter's shear. So if that's what it means to be a Rebbe, to be Rav Shechter, so, okay, you probably should go into accounting. That, that it's, it's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do that. Um, and I don't remember as well what it was like four or five years ago when they were sitting in a high school classroom or eight or nine years ago when they were sitting in an elementary school classroom. And we have to tell them, no, you could do this. You, you're not going to be a Gadol Hador in most cases. Uh, you're not going to be a God Hador. You're not going to do that, but that's okay. Because, you know, we always speak about the fact that you don't teach Torah, you teach students. You teach students, you teach students Torah. You, you, you help people, you help community members to, to, go, to, to go one step forward in terms of their Yiddishkeit, to push forward, to get through difficult times. Um, and if a person can have a life 
and a career, a career, it's, it is a career. If you can make a career out of teaching Torah and doing chesed and helping Jews through difficult times, it, it, it's a privilege to be able to do that with your life. We are running a little bit low on time. I just want to get maybe one or two points in uh, because I, I I have just a ton of stuff that we can go on all night. I just don't want to leave you here all night. Um, is this a situation that is just affecting the non-Orthodox community? On my notes, I had, um, I basically gave myself two extremes. Uh, is this affecting Lakewood? Is BMG affecting this? And is this affecting JTS also on the, on the, other, on the other side of this? Are, the, are these things that are happening throughout the, uh, the American Jewish population or is this just focused in a few pockets? Certainly anecdotally, it seems to be happening throughout the, the Jewish community. Um, within, the, within the limits of greater Lakewood, I don't think it's that hard to find teachers within Lakewood, uh, but to find you know, people from, it, it's certainly something that you know, we hear from different, different places. Um, my, uh, my stepsister is uh, Alex Fletcher, who writes for a number of different publications. Former guest from the show. Oh, okay. Former <laughs> guest from this show. And she was, recently wrote a piece, I believe, for Mishpacha magazine. And uh, we, you know, we had an opportunity to talk about it at length. Another Clevelander. Yep. Uh, Clevelander there. Um, so it just seems to be across the board. And, and, and it seems to be, again, very tied to the same idea that the first priority and unfortunately it has to be for me the first priority is to know that i'm going to be able to be set up i'm going to be set i'll be able to build a family I'll be able to buy a house i'll be able to send my kids to yeshiva it's very hard to think about you know past that and what else i need to be able to do but the reality is there are a lot of people in chinuch and there are a lot of people in rabbanus and they're very happy not all of them but they're very happy and they are making it and they don't have they don't all have wealthy in-laws um, and people really are doing it and, and, and letting people know that you can do this, you can do this and you can do this, um, I think is a lot of the, is a lot of the picture here. And then as Rabbi Chandler said, you got to walk them, you got to walk them by the hand from 12th grade to their first teaching position. You got to walk them by the hand. There's so many off ramps. And as you know, there are off ramps even after you start teaching, but our goal is to put enough people, get them from point A to point B. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I mentioned before the support and what Ray Penner was just talking about, you know, so much of what he was, we, he was just saying, um, you know, we, we underestimate the power of just identifying and tapping, uh, you know, a, a student, another, another kid in the community that we know, a uh, a, a camper, um, a, 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 a great babysitter, and say, hey, you know you're really good at this. You're really good with kids. You're really good at explaining things. You're really good at, at connecting. You should really look into teaching. And there was a, a really a really large study done by CASGI, the Consortium for Applied Jewish Studies, I think I may have gotten wrong what it stands for, um, last, uh, last summer. Um, and they found of the thousands of teachers that they interviewed, the number one uh, consistent thing that every teacher said played a role in their choosing to go into teaching was somebody, a family member, a mentor, a peer, a friend, saying to them at some point, you'd be really good at this. Um, and I think that we as a community, and certainly we we in, in Yeshiva University and through this, uh, this new program, um, hope to not be shy about that and to be a little bit more explicit, you know, not to... Um, you know, not to not to force people to make decisions that they they don't want to make, but to make sure that the people who who have that potential, um, and have that energy and that excitement and those capacities know it about themselves, um, and and choose on their own to at least explore. I also wanted to get I know Rabbi Channelist, you spoke a little bit earlier about uh, women and how this shortage is kind of affecting them also, um, but we also mentioned uh, a lot of people making Aliyah now. Are the shortages in education, I don't know if there's something you guys know about, um, is this affecting the landscape in Israel as well? Is this something that they're having a shortage with? Um, specifically, are YU graduates, are they looking for jobs in, let's say, yeshivas and seminaries um, in Israel, or are they experiencing shortages there as well? I'll answer that one because I actually have a lot to do with that. Um, I don't think the yeshivas and the seminaries is where the challenge is in Eretz Israel. Everyone who wants to make Aliyah dreams of going back to their yeshiva and teaching there. Um, the reality is that they only have four Rebbe jobs. And even if you get a job as a Shaul 
for a year or two, it doesn't mean you're going to get one of those jobs. Um, but there is a teacher shortage in Israel, as there is here. And there's also uh, a desire, especially because of the boom of American Olim and the American bubbles, as we call them, uh, Modi'in, Beit Shemesh, etc. There's a tremendous desire to have more American style Rabbeim, uh, whether it's in a shul position, which is a totally different world there, or in the school. And one of the things that we've, we've Rabbi Chanelis has a counterpart in Israel, um, Rabbi Yossi Golden, father used to be the rabbi in Englewood for many, many years. Rabbi Yossi Golden is working on exactly that, figuring out how our many fellows who are going to Israel, how can we land them in the Israeli chinuch system? And now I'm talking about Israeli, about Be'er Sheva and, and Cholon. And we're talking about how can they teach the children of Olim who speak English, but are supposed to be speaking Hebrew in the classroom, and they're going to teach in Hebrew. And uh, we'll probably this, this, this fall be having our first uh, Olpan program to have rabbis who are making aliyah, to, to offer them a few dollars instead of jumping in and taking the first American friends of whatever job um, to say, no, take it a little easy this first year, take an old pun, and we will uh, we'll expose you to different jobs in the Israeli sector of Avodos HaKodesh. And maybe there's, maybe there's where, where you can contribute there. So we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot Right. This is where I come back in and say, Rabbi Penner, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you taking? But, you know, we, we, I think we all agree that the future is certainly there, uh, but there's a tremendous amount of manpower needed uh, as long as we're supposed to be out here. Um, and uh, so we're pushing on both fronts, actually, to push people to meaningful jobs in Eretz Israel that involve uh, Israelis and also jobs across the country and across Canada, across the world that involve uh, teaching here. That's only another reason that we need to probably double, double the number of people going into the field. So I have, I have two more questions and, and then a couple of wrap-ups. Um, first question is, what are the ramifications of, I guess, the short-term and the long-term shortages? I mean, I'll, I'll say what, what I hope doesn't happen. Um, you know, okay, so do, do, a few, do that. A few heads of school, you know, one one head of school presented almost not quite a doomsday scenario, but a, a scenario where, you know, the well-resourced uh, schools, right, start to raise their their salaries to poach and and get you know the teachers that they need from other schools, and the schools that are not quite as well-resourced end up with uh, with almost nobody. Um, you know, the schools have in general, you know, had a had a not uh, not written agreement. Um, but kind of like a mutual understanding that, you know, you don't poach teachers for parallel positions from other other schools. Um, and I, I hope that we don't get to a place where that has to has to change. But certainly, you know, that's what some heads of school I spoke to are, are, are worried about. So I guess the follow up question to that, and this is my final one, is are we at at rock bottom at this point or are things going to get worse before they are going to get better? What do you think, Rabbi Chanelis? How quickly can you work your magic? I don't. I didn't ask that. I didn't say how quick is the turnaround. I said, is this as 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 low as it can go? I I, I know we've had earlier in the in the conversation about the the, the plans that Rabbi Channelis and European are putting in place uh, in order to try to turn these things around. But are are we are we at the at the bottom? I, of I this think that problem? the shul. I think that the shul rabbinate. There were a lo- there was a tremendous flurry of openings after COVID. Mm-hmm. Our placement department placed an untold number, but we've never had numbers like this, a number of placements and that they were involved with. I think the shul rabbi shortage is probably a little more short-term. It's a little more of, a, of an extended COVID bump. And I think we'll grow back into that and we'll, we'll have, and I think pretty much recovered for this fall. You know, when Rosh Hashanah, we'll pretty much have the shuls that depend on us across the country and the world pretty much covered. The school, I think, I think we're in for a couple of, difficult years unless we can begin to turn things around. I think that anyone who is a principal or assistant principal, including my daughter, who's an assistant principal in Har Torah in, uh, locally in Queens, um, will tell you that they have, uh, they have openings and it's September, September 8th. Um, I've, never, I've never had as many people come to me from New York area schools to say that they don't they weren't able to get the staff that they that they needed. 
um, from New York area schools that they weren't able to, to fill positions, never mind out of town. So I think we're in for a couple of rough years unless we can begin to, you know, to turn to turn the ship around. Like schools will get creative. They'll figure out how to put two classrooms together and this and that. But this can't be what our this can't be where you know our community is uh, is looking to go. There's a tremendous amount of, of of pride that we should have in our Talmidim, Talmidot, our young men and women. You know, at the beginning of this work that I started to do, people were telling me that there's no idealism, uh, that people are not as, as as passionate about learning and giving to the Jewish people. Um, and that's not at all what I heard from students. I heard a tremendous amount of idealism, a tremendous amount of excitement about, about wanting to give back to Kal Yisrael and a lot of anxiety and nervousness. Hmm. Um, definitely a lot of a lot of excitement and passion. And we have incredible, incredible um, young people, young men and young women out there. Um, we just need to help them find uh, find what's right for them. So I guess we'll end with the, where can people find out more information from you guys, um, from YU? Um, I don't know if either of you do social media, um, but if you- Some, well, this is actually, it's actually a joint project of, uh, of the Azraeli Graduate School of Education which obviously is for men and for uh, for women. And uh, the Rabbi Isaac Ochanan Theological Seminary, the Smicha program at YU. So certainly we, have, we are uh, open to people's advice and help. And, and to be honest, yes, the contributions as well towards this effort. Um, we're not expecting to be able to change teachers' salaries. That's a constant discussion and that requires an investment of enormous funds you know, across the community. But we do hope to be able to uh, invest enough in this program that we can inspire young people, identify young people, um, and get them some of the training they need, the scholarships they need to Azraeli, uh, you know, so that they can that they, that they can they can go from a moment of inspiration to to being in the field. And, and certainly, I, certainly, I want to hear from uh, listeners who have suggestions, have feedback, have ideas, have have uh, children or friends who are maybe encouraging or discouraging their children. Um, why is that? What can we be doing? Um, you know, what what kind of experiences have you had? And the best way to uh, to share that would be to send an email to chinuch at yu.edu. Chinuch at yu.edu. And where else could we find out? Is there, is, is there an Israeli social media account? Is there a Rabbi Yehuda channel social media account? There is, there, there is a Reedstein uh, Twitter account. Many okay. people know that. But uh, yeah, you can look us up there and you can certainly look us up at yu.edu um, with links for Israeli and for Reeds and for much of what we do. And that's actually how I found out. I just went on YU's website and I emailed Rabbi Penner um, and, and your assistant helped them out so much uh, to make this happen. Um, and I certainly appreciate your time. Rabbi Penner, Rabbi Channelis, thank you guys so much for joining me. This has been enlightening. Um, it did not disappoint, except for the topic, which was we knew going in was going to be a disappointing topic. But uh, I'm glad that there are people that are on top of this. I'm glad that YU is very much aware, that REACH is very much aware, and then and, and Israeli, uh, they're doing all they can to turn this around. And I appreciate everything you guys are doing for this community. Baruch Hashem. Thank you for having us. And uh, Baruch Hashem. Kaddish Baruch is not going to abandon our community here. He will figure out through us and through others how to, uh, how to make sure he has teachers. Because we have to remember that um, they're his children too. And if they're his children too, he'll try to figure out how to make sure that they have uh, people to teach them. So, we'll see very good things soon. Thank you very much. Amen. My thanks to Rabbi Menachem Penner and Rabbi Yehuda Channelist for joining me this week. I've mentioned it on this show before, but I used to be a teacher. In fact, my undergraduate degree is in secondary education. When I graduated college about a decade ago, New York City under then-Mayor Michael Bloomberg was on a hiring freeze, and it was very difficult for graduates from my year to get a job teaching. It is a wonder what a difference 10 years can make, where now there is a shortage of educators out there, and I yearn for the days when schools will not just have to figure it out, as Rabbi Penner put it. I wish Ritz, Azraeli, and all institutions looking to help figure this thing out much hatzlacha, and hopefully they can do it sooner rather than later. Until next time, Kultur. 
The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Srelly Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg. Follow us on Facebook at The Jewish Living Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Jewish underscore living. You can also email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link.